Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 this morning. You can open your Bibles there in our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We've come there, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. As you're turning there, let me tell you about a museum that exists in Petersburg, Kentucky. It's called the Creation Museum. State-of-the-art, 70,000 square foot museum that's committed to presenting a worldview consistent with the Bible and particularly consistent with the, um, uh, the creation account as given in the book of Genesis. puts forth six days of creation. It's God created on each of these days. It has wax sculptures of Adam and Eve in the garden. Animals there as well in perfect peace. It shows Eve being tempted by Satan and the disastrous result that takes place as she eats the forbidden fruit with her husband Adam. Shows the consequence of the fall, the hard labor that comes after that. Shows Cain and Abel and Methuselah. It's got dinosaurs, over, over 80, I think, dinosaurs. Full scale, full life dinosaurs. Some of them are animatronic, which means they're motion sensitive and they move and can even scare you if uh, you're not careful. It shows Noah building his ark and a scientific model for how the flood could have covered the whole earth and explained many of the geological features that we feature in the world today, and also does a great job of showing our need for Christ with a great gospel presentation as well. The sufficiency of a sacrifice. Great place to visit. I know that many of you, how many of you have been to the Creation Museum? Good, quite a few of you. If you haven't been, you want to. Um, my wife and I are charter members of that, which means that we've got some passes that we can help give you uh, to reduce your cost in that. It's, a, it's now near um, Cincinnati. It's about a Six hours, seven, eight hour drive, I forget what it is, but you get a hotel one night, stay there, do it, and you can be back by midnight the next day. would encourage you. It's a great place to be there. Anyway, at the museum, uh, after you visit the main hall, you kind of uh, enter into the hallway so you can walk down through the, I guess it's kind of a, a tale through the history of the world, if you will. And the first thing you encounter there is a, a dinosaur fossil dig site. And uh, you see two wax figures of paleontologists who are there unearthing um, some bones of a dinosaur. You can see kind of his, his rib cage there of the dinosaur. And uh, one of these men, one of these paleontologists, believes in evolution, and one of them believes in uh, the creation, the biblical account of that. And above the, above the exhibit, there's this video that goes over and over and over again. And um, they're explaining what they see. And the, the man on this side who believes in evolution is explaining what... What he sees when he sees this dinosaur here, he says, well, I believe that millions of years ago, this animal died and then it decayed and then slowly over time was filled with sediment and now we have the existence, the remnants of the, the dinosaur. And then we goes and talks to a man who's a creation side and he says, well, I see something different than my friend and colleague sees here. I see rather a dinosaur that lived several thousand years ago and died quickly in a flood, and in that flood is what covered the sediment rock over him, and we have the sediment, we have the bones that remain. And it points out that they both have the same evidence, but they interpret it differently. And so I want you to think about why is it they interpret it differently? Well, the answer comes in our text this morning. Hebrews 11, verse 3. Let me read it, and then I'll show you why the paleontologists see things differently. It says, 11 verse 3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now the text is so short this morning we can read it again. 
By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And so why do the paleontologists disagree as to how the dinosaur bones were buried in the earth? In many ways, faith is the answer. You can see that two words right at the beginning of that verse. It says, by faith is how we understand. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. So God has told us how He's created the world by His Word and by faith we believe it. And God has told us by His Word how He's created the world and without faith many don't believe it. And such is a difference in the worldviews of these paleontologists. One doesn't believe what God has said and one does. If you've ever been in a discussion with somebody who believes in evolution, um, you know how difficult it is to persuade them and get a point across. Because you can say, yeah, well, I believe God created the world and... Your friend says, well, everything evolved naturally, they say. Or you tell your friend that many scientists are creationists, and they say many scientists are evolutionists. You say, well, if life came about by chance, there's no purpose for life. And uh, your, your friend says, well, purpose in life doesn't come from the origin of life. And you say, well, design implies a designer. And your friend says, no, natural selection can bring design as well. You say, well, mutations are harmful. And your, your friend says, well... The harmful, most mutations are harmful, but the harmful ones die away. But the few that are beneficial stay on. And you can go on and on about trying to persuade your friend to go round and round. You might never change the mind. But, but I want you to realize that the fundamental issue is not an intellectual issue. It's a belief issue, which is the fundamental issue here. See, it's by faith that we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. Without faith... People don't consider God as the answer to how people came into being. Instead, they look to their own thoughts and try to create a natural reason for the existence of the world apart from a supernatural Creator. Now, the truth of Scripture is this, is that everybody knows there's a God. Those who say there is no God really are denying what they know deep down in their souls. As Andy began the service in Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, "...the heavens are telling of the glory of God." And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day it pours forth speech. And night to night it reveals knowledge. The heavens is telling everybody in the created order that there is a God. Without words, God is making Himself known in the universal language, the language of the stars, the vastness of them, the number of them, the beauty of them, the power of them. They say the same thing. It says, God is and that God is glorious. But it's not only the language of the stars, as Psalm 19 says, it's also the language of the creation itself. Listen to what Job says in Job 12, 7-10. Job said, Ask the beasts and let them tell you. Ask the birds of the heavens and let them tell you. Or speak to the earth and let it teach you and let the fish of the sea declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. In other words, what Job is saying is, is this, is this, let the beasts teach you, let the birds teach you, let the earth, let the fish, let everything teach you that God is and that God is the one that's sovereign over creation and causes the realities of life. In our service we sang, I sing the mighty power of God. Hymns really singing the glories of creation. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day, 
The moon shines full at His command and all the stars obey. Just was singing of the praise of the creation of God. And then it continues on, There's not a plant nor flower below, but makes Thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from Thy throne. Lord, how Thy wonders are displayed wherever I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread or gaze upon the sky, Your wonders are known because it's the glories of creation that makes it known. The reality of the world is that it screams for the glory of God. It tells us all that He is there. But there are some who deny it. Romans chapter 1, as Darren read for us, speak about how God has made Himself evident within everybody. And it even says there that, that people know God, but they deny Him. Even though they knew God, it says in Romans 1.21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in the speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And see, here's where it all comes together. That God has made Himself known in all of mankind. He's made His power known. He's made His divine nature known. He's done this through the created world. And nobody who's ever walked the planet can claim they didn't know because they've known through the created world. And in fact, it even says that they knew God. They gnoskoed God. That is, they, they had an intimate knowledge of God. Now, certainly there are those who deny such a statement. They say, no, I don't, I don't believe there's a God. I don't know there's a God. But the reality of Romans 1 says that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So there's a conflict in their souls, a conflict between what they want and what they know is right. And so they suppress the truth so they can pursue after what they want. They'll deny God's existence first so they can pursue after their sin. That's how it works. Rather than giving thanks to God, they've walked, found ways around God. In fact, listen to the testimony of one atheist. His name is Thomas Nagel. He said this, he says, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, naturally. Hope that I'm right in my belief. No, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And then he ponders back. He says, I'm curious whether there's anyone who's generally indifferent as to whether there's a God. Anyone who, whatever his actual belief about the matter, doesn't particularly want either one of the choices to be correct. And and, and even what he's saying there is he's saying that he doesn't want God. And you say, why? Well, he doesn't really get the root of why. Probably why is because he doesn't want the universe to be such that there's a creator God to whom he's accountable. So he'll do whatever he can do to convince himself of what he wants to believe. And how accurate is verse 22 then of Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's what takes place. People think themselves to be so wise. I just say, when eternity comes to bear and every thought of every heart is opened up and the hidden things are revealed, they'll be shown for who they are. They're fools. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool has said his heart, there is no God. Now, know that it doesn't mean they're dumb. Okay? It doesn't mean they're dumb. Now, when the Bible calls them fools, it means that they, they just can't see everything. They're, they're blind to the spiritual realities of life. I mean, think about what is a fool. A fool is one who sees only a part of life and doesn't see the whole thing. And so lives in light of the part, not the whole. Like, for instance, the fool is the one who doesn't see the poverty that will come from his laziness. So, he's lazy, but he doesn't see the poverty. If he saw the poverty that would come from his laziness, the wise one then would change. But the foolish one doesn't see the 
poverty that will come. The fool is the one who doesn't see the destruction that will come from his marital unfaithfulness. The fool is the one that doesn't see the trouble that will come when he despises his father's discipline. And so likewise, regarding the creation, the fool is the one who doesn't see the fruit of eternity when he rejects a Creator God. Thereby sees only part of life. He only sees this part of life and doesn't see beyond it. And so the one who says there is no God is a fool in, in that sense. But it is interesting, when you run across atheists, and as I have been around in my life and spoken to many people and spoken to many atheists before, um, I've run a fair number of them anyway, i found in general there's a degree of intellectualism in them. They, they really thought through their case pretty well. They say, well, I don't see a God, and I, I don't see a God, I can't believe what I don't see, and so I don't have faith. And, and oftentimes they have very intellectual arguments for what they, they say, and maybe your experience is the same. Through the Scriptures, they profess to be wise, but actually they're foolish. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. Uh, he puts it in his book. You know, I got it, I've got it here. Uh, he, he just talks about just where intellectuals are. This is a great book, The Reason for God. Tim Keller, he's the one that's uh, uh, written the curriculum that we're studying in a small groups, um, The Gospel and Life, The Reason for God. Listen to what he says. He says, I want to show that there are sufficient reasons for believing Christianity. Prominent disbelievers in Christianity today, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, insist that sufficient reasons do not exist for the existence of God. Dawkins, for example, says that the claim of God's existence is a scientific hypothesis that should be open to rational demonstration. He and his co-skeptics want a logical or empirical argument for God that is airtight and therefore convinces almost everyone. And they won't believe until they get it. Is there anything wrong with that? And then Tim Keller says, I think so. These authors are evaluating Christian arguments by what some have called strong rationalism. Its proponents laid down what is called the verification principle, namely that one should believe a proposition, should, no one should believe a proposition unless it can be proved rationally by logic or empirically by sense evidence, sense experience. What is meant by the word proved? Prove in this view is an argument so strong that no person whose logical faculties are operating properly would have any reason for disbelieving it. Atheists and agnostics ask for this kind of proof for God, but are not alone in holding a strong rationalism. Many Christians claim that their arguments for faith are so strong that all who reject them are simply closing their minds to truth out of fear or stubbornness. But despite all the books calling Christians to prove, give proofs for their beliefs, it's very interesting. Think about this here. You won't find... Philosophers doing so. Not even the most atheistic. The great majority think that strong rationalism is nearly impossible to defend. Begin with, it can't live up to its own standards. How could you empirically prove that no one should believe something without empirical proof? You can't. And that reveals it to be ultimately a belief. Strong rationalism also assumes that it's possible to achieve the view from nowhere, a position of almost complete objectivity. But virtually all philosophers today agree that's impossible. We come to every individual evaluation with all sorts of experiences and background and beliefs that strongly influence our thinking and the way our reason works. It's not fair then to demand an argument that all rational people should have to bow to. And see, when it comes to the creation... It's all about our faith. It's really believing what God has said. 
because you can't, you can't prove it. You can't prove it one way. You can't prove it the other way. There is an element of faith in believing what God has said. As Hebrews 11 verse 3 says, by faith it's we understand that the world is prepared by the Word of God. And if you understand what Tim Keller is saying, you can also see that it's by faith that people deny that the world is prepared by the Word of God. Because they're basing their arguments on strong rationalism, which is by itself a belief as well. In other words, when you look at the origins of the world, any way you stack it up, there is an element of faith within it. In fact, I'd go farther than this. I'd, I'd contend that faith plays the predominant role in how you view the origins of the universe. And it's just appropriate here. Hebrews 11 is all about faith. And he starts here about the creation. And, and just how you look at things are going to demonstrate which side you're on. I want another book I want to read for you. This is going to be a, a long quote. We, as our family, we've been reading The Magician's Nephew. It's the sixth in the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, we came to the portion of the book this week where Aslan is creating the world and, and I love the way it's described of how he creates the world. And yes, my reading is going to be long here, but C.S. Lewis puts the point so well that I think you'll, you'll bear with me as I, as I read this lengthy quote here from this book. All you need to know is Diggory is the magician's nephew. And uh, he gives perspective of creation. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass, and soon there were other things beside the grass. The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley and Diggory did not know what they were until one began coming up close to him. It was a little spiky thing that grew out. Dozens of arms and covered these arms with green and grew large at the rate of about an inch every two seconds. And there were dozens of these things all around him now and they were nearly as tall as himself. He saw what they were. What are they, kids? They're trees that grew up. Exactly right. And then there's an interchange... And then sometime later, we read here, in a few minutes, Diggory came to the edge of the wood and there he stopped and the lion was singing still. But now the song had much more changed. It was much more like what we'd call a tune. But it was far wilder. It made you want to run and jump and climb. It made you want to shout. It made you want to rush at other people and either hug them or fight them. It made Diggory hot and red in the face. Can you imagine a stress of grassy, stretch of grassy land bubbling like water in a pot? That's really the best description of what was happening. In all directions, it was swelling into humps. They were of very different sizes. Some came no bigger than molehills, some as big as wheelbarrows, two the size of cottages. And these humps moved and swelled until they burst and the, the crumbled earth poured out of them. And from each hump there came out an animal. The moles came out just as you might see a mole come out in England. The dogs came out barking the moment their heads were free and struggling as you see them do when they're getting through a narrow hole in a hedge. The stars were the queer, the stags were the queerest to watch for. Of course, the antlers came up a long time before the rest of them, so at first Diggory thought they were trees. The frogs, who all came up near the river, went straight into it with a plop plop and a loud croaking. 
the panthers and leopards and things of that sort, sat down at once to wash the loose earth off their hindquarters and then stood up against the trees to sharpen their front claws. Showers of birds came out of the trees. Butterflies fluttered. Bees got to work on the flowers as if they had a sec- had the second to lose. But the greatest moment of all came when the biggest hump broke like a small earthquake. And out of the sloping back, the large, wise head and the four baggy trousered legs of an elephant. And now you could hardly hear a, the song of the lion. There was so much cawing, cooing, crowing, braying, neighing, baying, barking, lowing, bleeding, and trumpeting. But though Diggory could no longer hear the lion, he could see it. And it was so big and so bright that he could not take his eyes off it. The other animals did not appear to be afraid of it. And now, for the first time, the lion was quite silent. He was going to and fro among the animals. And every now and then, he'd go up to two of them, always two at a time. And he'd touch their noses with his. He would touch the two beavers among all the beavers, two leopards among all the leopards, one stag and one deer among all the deer, and leave the rest. Some sort of animal he passed over altogether. But the pears, which he had touched, instantly left their own kind and followed him. At last he stood still, and all the creatures whom he had touched came and stood in a wide circle around him. And the others whom he had not touched began to wander away, and their noises faded gradually into the distance. The chosen beasts who remained were now utterly silent, all with their eyes fixed intently on the lion. The cat-like ones gave an occasional twitch of the tail, but otherwise all were still. For the first time that day, there was complete silence except for the noise of the running water. Diggory's heart beat wildly. He knew something very solemn was going to be done. And the lion, whose eyes never blinked, stared at the animals as hard as if he were going to burn them up with his mere stare. And gradually a change came over them. The smaller ones, the rabbits, moles and such like, grew a great deal larger. The very big ones, you noticed it most, with the elephants grew a little smaller. Many of the animals sat on their hind legs. Most put their heads on one side as if they were trying hard to understand. The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees far overhead from beyond the veil of blue sky which had hid them. The stars sang again, a pure, cold, difficult music. And then it came a swift flash like a fire, but burnt nobody either from the sky or from the lion itself. And every drop of blood tingles in the children's bones. And the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia! Narnia! Narnia, awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. It was, of course, the lion's voice. The children long felt sure that he could speak. It was a lovely and terrible shock when he did. And all the beasts and the birds and their different voices, low or high or thick or clear, replied, Hail Aslan! We hear and obey. We awake. We love. We think. We speak. We know. Such is the creation account that C.S. Lewis gives. Beautiful, right? The the lion is singing the creation into being. The, The beasts are happy. They're in harmony with each other. There's a beautiful creation there. It's fresh. It's joyful. It's happy. But that's only half the story. Because... C.S. Lewis contained to tell the creation from a different perspective. And when I heard this, we read this this week, I said, you know what? That's Hebrews 11, verse 3. It's by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. So there's another perspective. His is Andrew. He's the uncle. 
magician's nephew, and he wasn't so delighted with the creation. Listen to his perspective of the creation. So after a few pages in a chapter, C.S. Lewis goes this. Now we must go back a bit and explain what the whole scene had looked like from Uncle Andrew's point of view. It has not made at all the same impression on him as on the children. For what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you're standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Think about that. We'll come back to it. What you see and hear depends a great deal upon where you're standing and also depends a great deal on what sort of person you are. Ever since the animals had first appeared, Uncle Andrew had been shrinking further and further back into the thicket. He watched them very hard, of course, but wasn't really interested in seeing what they were doing, only in seeing whether they were going to make a rush at him. And like the witch, he was dreadfully practical. He simply didn't notice that Aslan was choosing one pair of every kind of beast. All he saw, or thought he saw, was a lot of dangerous wild animals walking vaguely about. And he kept on wondering why the other animals didn't run away from this big lion. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point for a rather interesting reason. When the lion had first begun singing... Long ago, when it was still quite dark, he had realized that the noise was a song. And he had disliked the song very much, and it made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. And then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, only a lioness, he said to himself, he tried his hardest to make himself believe that it, it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo might do in our own world. Of, of course, it can't really have been singing, he thought. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Who ever heard of a lion singing? And the longer and more beautifully the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider is that you really are... The trouble with trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did, and soon did hear nothing but the roaring in Aslan's song. Soon he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he had wanted to. And when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake! He didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. And when the beast spoke in answer, he heard only barkings, growlings, brayings, and howlings. And when they laughed, well, you can imagine, that was worse for Uncle Andrew than anything that had happened yet. Such a horrid, bloodthirsty din of hungry and angry brutes he had never heard in all his life. And then to his utter rage and horror, he saw the other three humans actually walking out into the open to meet the animals. I trust you see the the perspective. From Diggory's perspective, it was wonderful. He was believing and submitting to Aslan, so he heard the song of creation. And to him, all was beautiful and marvelous. He approached the lion without fear, but Uncle Andrew was not believing and rather than hearing the song and rejoicing, it was just noise to him. And rather than approaching the lion, he fled. Any perspective comes down to how you look at things. Remember, C.S. Lewis put it? What you see in here depends a good deal on where you're standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. And we can apply that to the creation. What you think and know about the creation of the world depends on whether or not you have faith in the Creator. I think that's my my small point for those big stories, illustration told. 
He said, what you think and know about the creation of the world depends on whether you have faith in the Creator. That's exactly what Hebrews 11 verse 3 says. It's by faith we understand, right? Without faith, we're not going to understand that the world is prepared by the Word of God. Right? If faith is absent from our lives, we're not going to understand that God created this wonderful world. But with faith, we do understand. It's those who are believing who understand it. And notice here that it's not just a blind faith. It's not a blind leap of faith into the unreasonable. No, there are very good reasons to believe that God created the world. In fact, that's the whole premise behind the Creation Museum. It exists so that you can understand the belief of God as Creator doesn't mean disengaging your mind. Because even it says here, to understand. The word understand here, noel, is a, is a cognitive word. It's a rational word. It's uh, something that says we've taken in the facts and we've considered them carefully. We've thought about them. Found them to be reasonable. We've embraced the reality and we understand. For us who believe that God created the world, such is the case, right? We read the Word of God and we understand what God has said. We believe what God has said when it says that God created the world and we believe by faith. Now, we believe it first primarily because of our faith in God. Because I wasn't there. And you all weren't there. In fact, nobody in all of creation was there. God in His Word tells us how it all went down. And by faith, we accept it. Here's the account of creation that God has given us. Genesis 1. I'm going to read the whole thing. Genesis 1. Just listen to it. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning a second day. And then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and gathered the waters. He called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said that the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good and it was evening and there was morning a third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse and the heavens to give the light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the sea monsters and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in the seas. 
and let birds multiply on the earth. And there's evening and there's morning, a fifth day. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God says, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves in the earth which has light, I, life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that He would made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's the account of creation that God has given to us. I want you even to, to notice how much God was speaking. We have 31 verses in that text. Eleven times we have a direct quotation from God. What He said and then what happened. When God spoke, things happened. God spoke with authority. You see the centrality of the Word also in the act of creation in our text. If you look there again, Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared. How? By the Word of God. That's how they were prepared. When God spoke, that prepared the world. And we can see in other places, the Bible, the creation is tied to the Word of God. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. For He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 148, verse 5, let creation praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. In fact, that's where we got the song we sang this morning. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. It even speaks about um, let the rivers sing, let the stars sing, let every created thing sing. And that's what Psalm 148 says. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him all the angels. Praise Him all the hosts. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him stars of light. Praise him highest heavens. Let the waters that are above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord. Why? For He commanded and they were created. You see, the, the Word of God bringing about the creation of the world. See, when God speaks, the creation comes into existence and such is the authority of the Word of God over creation. And I just ask you this, if God has such authority over creation that He would speak and things take place, how much authority does the Word of God in Genesis hold over your life? When God pours forth the creation in six days, do you believe it? And I say we have every reason to believe that God created us, He said. So I've heard someone say, it's said often that uh, you know, Christians believe in one great miracle, God, and everything follows after that. And God can create how He wants, in whatever way He wants. Now this morning... Whatever, I'm 35 minutes into my message. Now's not the time to delve into scientific discussions of the merits of a young earth versus an old earth or to believe Genesis chapter 1 as it is face value or go on. 
But now is just time to say this. If you believe that God created the world, as Genesis 1 says, there are scientific reasons to support what you believe. Many people have found them reasonable and rational. If it's a question for you, I've got plenty of books, CDs, DVDs to help you in these things. Now, ultimately, can we prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that God created the world? No, we can't. But neither can we prove that He didn't. But this is the place of, of faith. And faith is important. In fact, if you look over verse 6, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, without faith it's impossible to please Him. If you want to please God, you need to have faith. And particularly, it says the kind of faith you need to have. For he who comes to God must believe, here's the faith, that he is, that God is, and we'll talk a couple weeks about arguments for the creation, for the existence of God, and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him, that not only does God exist, but, but he, he loves and he rewards those who seek him. And that's a theme here through Hebrews chapter 11 of those who are looking to the reward, looking beyond this life to see God help them. This morning we're going to now turn to the last half of verse 3. We focus our attention here. Didn't have an outline because it's all coming together, but we've talked a lot about faith. We've talked a bit about understanding. Right? We've talked about the Word of God. How the worlds are prepared that way. And now, the purpose here. So that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. It describes in the greatest terms the creation of God. God created out of nothing. Perhaps you've heard the term ex nihilo before. X from exit, nihilo from nil. X out of nihil nothing. Out of nothing is what ex nihilo means. That describes God's creative work. In fact, that's what, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And I think the best way to illustrate this is a story of the scientists who got together. Maybe you've heard this before. They come a long way. They realize they no longer needed a God. So they picked one scientist to go and talk with God and basically tell God they were done with them. And so the scientist walked up to God and said, God, we don't need you. We're the point. We can clone people. And we've done many miraculous things now, so why don't you go away, God, and why don't you get lost? And so God listened patiently and kindly to this man, waiting for him to get done, and then said, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Let's have a man-making contest. And so the scientist said, oh, great, we will. And, and God said, no, no, we're going we're gonna to do it just like I did back in the days with Adam. The scientist said, sure, no problem. And he went down and grabbed himself some dirt and you remember what God said? Whoa! You go get your own dirt. Kind of, kind of helps you to see what creation ex nihilo means or, or to create things that are visible out of the things which were invisible. Because there was nothing before and then God created and there was. Of course, through Einstein we understand E equals MC squared, right? A lot of energy can be converted into mass. That's what God has done. With nothing, just gives energy and you can create mass from that. But that's the power of the creation of God. And when you understand that energy equals the mass times the speed of light squared. Speed of light's pretty fast, pretty big. The speed of light squared is huge. The kind of energy it takes to create matter, the kind of matter that's in the universe, you realize how powerful God is. Everything that we as humans create starts with something. So there was some, some piece of creation put it together to create our cars and our, our radios or our shovels or our houses or ladders. Whatever we have, we start with something, but God's creation is different. He begins with nothing and creates everything. 
And it's right here that we begin to really see the connect throughout all of Hebrews 11. At this point, I've ignored the context, okay? But one of the questions I've had as I've been studying Hebrews 11 is this. How does verse 3 fit into the whole? I mean, last week, verse 2, I, I hit that verse, for it is by faith that the men of old gained approval. And I said, this is a summary for, for all of Hebrews 11. Right? We're going to look back to the, the men of old and, and we're going to see what it's like when Abel walked by faith and when Enoch walked by faith and Noah walking by faith and Abraham walking by faith. But, but it seems like there's this verse 3 that's in between. So how does he, how does he talk? In fact, verse 3 isn't even talking about the men of old. Verse 3 is talking about us. It's by faith we understand that the world is prepared by the Word of God. It's talking about our faith. Which is, by the way, it just assumes that we are those who believe that God created. We all must believe that He created the world, like He said, out of nothing. Well, I think there are two answers to this question why verse 3 is here. I think one is because the author is thinking about, okay, Faith. Let's see, how has it been demonstrated? I think he just went back to the book of Genesis. I mean, think about what comes in verse 4. It's Abel in verse 4, and it's Enoch in verse 5, and it's Noah in verse 7, and it's Adam in verse 8. I'm sorry, Abraham in verse 8, and round down, and then Sarah, and then he mentions Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and then Moses, and what he's done, he's just worked his way right through Genesis. And then he hits the beginning of Exodus and mentions Moses. And then he jumps to the conquest, mentions Jericho and Rahab. And then he, verse 32, he says, I'm out of time. So I can't even tell about the judges and the kings and the prophets, which he could have told much more. He just told a lot of their deeds really fast-like. And so I think in some regard, verse 3 comes about talking about creation because that's how it comes in the flow of Genesis. But I think there's another key why he's talking about faith. Because the creation is really faith in its most fundamental expression. Verse 1, look at how it describes faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, faith is something that, that looks towards something even that you don't quite see. Just exactly like the creation. None of us were there during the creation. But what do we do? We see it's here. And we believe that God's the one who created it because God is the one who told us. And so we're, we're believing things that we haven't seen and that kind of gives an illustration of what faith is and what it is about. It's, about. it's about believing the things you can't totally see and the creation is something we can't see and prove. Faith we believe in. Now, throughout the Scripture, it's also interesting, there is this emphasis upon the, the invisibleness of God. I mean, this, this is a key... It's a key Substance of faith. The Bible assumes God, but also speaks about how He's invisible. In fact, in Romans 1, when it speaks about God making Himself known, He's not saying that you've seen Me. No, what He's saying, He said the eternal power and divine nature of God has testified to Him. It says in John 1.18 that no one has seen God, but the only begotten God we have seen, Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be praise, glory, and honor. Never. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Because God is invisible, but Jesus Christ is His image. Reflects Him. As Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. So we don't see God, but we have this, this 
image of the invisible God. Jesus told us to pray to our Father who is unseen, Matthew 6, verse 6. In fact, look down at verse 27 about Moses. This, this is important. This invisible nature is important to Moses. By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. This is the key to faith. How, how is it that Moses left and endured? It's because he saw something that couldn't be seen. What, what did he see? He saw God. He saw, by faith, he saw God. And seeing the unseen is really key to our lives. Turn your Bibles as we head to a close. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In our prayer meeting, we went over this today. It's, it's kind of what we've been thinking about, about seeing the unseen. Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. For though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. He's just talking about the difficulties. And you can read about the difficulties in verses 7 and following that, that he's just facing difficulties in life. He says, I'm not one of those who lose heart. Even though outside I'm decaying, in, inwardly I'm, I'm growing. And he says, verse 17, for momentary light affliction. He says momentary light affliction. By momentary, he's talking about like 60 or 70 years. All right? He's talking about the lifetime on earth. He's calling it light momentary affliction. He calls it light affliction. He's talking about death, having his head chopped off probably. He's talking about being in jail, being in prison, being slandered. That's what he's talking about, momentary light affliction. And the only reason he can talk about momentary light affliction is because he sees eternity. He says these things are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And then here he goes. While we look, what's the key to Paul conquering and living in these ways, where he can say, like in verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Verse 9, persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed. How is it that he can always carry about in the body, verse 10, the dying of Jesus? How is it? It's because, verse 18, we look not the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That is, in other words, he's looking to the invisible God. He's looking to, by faith, the things he can't see. Then he says, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal, right? The fool looks to the temporal and says, hey, this is, this is all I got. Or the wise one looks to the eternal and sees beyond the temporal to that. And fundamental to our, our life of faith is seeing something beyond this life. We can't see it. We can't grasp it now. But by faith, we can live that way. Um, and I do believe that our problems in life and our problems of walking with God in this life are solved when we get a glimpse of eternity, when we get a glimpse of the future, when we have faith. Because when we have a glimpse of the future and the reward that's awaiting us, the things on earth are not so important to us anymore. We have a glimpse of eternity. I make it more bold in evangelism because we know where people are headed. We have a glimpse of eternity. We can endure the difficulties of this life just like, like Paul did. So I just say, are you living a life of faith? And maybe you say, you know, I do. I, do, I, I need more. It's interesting. Who gives the faith? Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, if our gospel is veiled, 
it's veiled to those who are perishing. That is, people don't see and understand the Gospel. If it's veiled to them, it's veiled to those who are dying, who are perishing. In whose case, verse 4, the God of this world, that is Satan himself, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know, when you talk about the evolutionists, the problem is that they are are not seeing and not believing because perhaps they've been blinded, don't see God, don't see Christ, only believe things in a naturalistic way. But instead, he says that Satan is blinded. So I think about what's the solution to that? The solution to that is Satan has blinded that. And God is the one, verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. And He's the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That means that God is the one who needs to come in and illumine and open our eyes of our heart, right? So we sang today, right? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see You. And maybe that's your prayer this morning. I want to see God high and lifted up. I want to see Him as the Creator, strong God that He is. I think it will help us in our life as we live. And I think that's the key to many of these people who live successful lives here in Hebrews chapter 11. So are you living a life of faith? It all begins by believing in the Creator. So let's pray. Father, I would pray that You would take my feeble attempts at opening Your Word, use it to pierce our hearts and expose where we don't believe. Help us to see and believe that You are our Creator God. And beyond that, see where You're the God who has come to dwell among us, Emmanuel. And You're the One who's come to give Your life for our sake. You who are rich became poor that we might become rich. You, the Master, became our servant that we might be served and brought into heaven. Lord, we pray that You would grant us faith and that we would understand these issues of creationism. We'd understand the issues of evolution. We understand as we speak with others that the issue isn't intellectual. The issue is moral. The issue is the one of faith. And so, Lord, if we struggle in these areas, I pray that You'd grant us the faith to simply believe what Your Word has spoken. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We love the Word even as we read from Psalm 19, it is more precious than gold, more desirable than the sweetness of the honey from the honeycomb. Oh God, let the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart be acceptable and pleasing in Your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.